This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the best of Maya Culpa. I hope you are enjoying a well-deserved break from the chaos of this past year and have some downtime over the holidays. While you're sitting on the beach or working in your garage, take some time to catch up on old episodes of Maya Culpa. You'll be amazed at how much has stayed exactly the same. And thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here with all new episodes starting on January 6th. Yeah, it's January 6th. Can you believe it? So without further ado, please enjoy this encore presentation of our November 23rd, 2020 interview with Lawrence Tribe. This is my I don't know what you need to wake you up, to do your job, and inform the American people, whether you like it or not, of the things they need to know. This is real. It is not made up. It is not, there's nobody here that engages in fantasies. I've tried 100 cases. I prosecuted some of the most dangerous criminals in the world. I know crimes. I can smell them. You don't have to smell this one. I can prove it to you 18 different ways. I can prove to you that he won Pennsylvania by 300,000 votes. I can prove to you that he won Michigan by probably 50,000 votes. When I went to bed on election night, he was ahead in all those states, every single one of those states. How is it they all turned around? Every single one of them turned around? Or is it more consistent that there was a plan to turn him around? And since there are witnesses who say there was a plan to turn him around, and it kind of begs credulity to say that it all happened in every single state. My goodness, this is how you win cases in a courtroom. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa podcast. I think today was the day my brain finally quit. After two weeks of watching this insane circus get progressively weirder and more insane, my fuse has finally blown. Nothing computes anymore. What's so maddening is that I'm not afraid or worried. In fact, it's the exact opposite. I'm profoundly irritated and annoyed, but in a way far beyond the simple annoyances of everyday life. No, this is a kind of quantum irritation for a world where creatures like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell invade my every thought and Donald Trump looms over all of us seemingly larger than ever. He says to her, how many f fingers do I? How many fingers do I got up? In the absence of any actual evidence and a growing knowledge that his legal strategy was a humiliating failure, Trump and his Manson family are pivoting towards something far more insane, if that's even possible. They're very, very bad people. They're not ordinary Democrats. There are wonderful Democrats in this country. They may disagree with you and me. You know them. Somehow the, the Democrat Party was hijacked by Clinton. And since then, it's gone more corrupt and more corrupt. Well, I wish you the best. Some, All right. somebody deserves the truth. Cut the head off. Rather than overturn the vote in individual states, Trump is now leading his crack legal minds to their next political Jonestown by asking Republican-held state legislators to ignore the will of the people and choose their own winner in these so-called contested states. The probability of this happening is the same as being hit by a meteorite or that Rudy Giuliani is secretly Fat Elvis. So off they go, marching towards the next cliff. 
And for some reason, like Wile E. Coyote or Freddy fucking Krueger, they simply won't die. Is that what you think? I might actually have a shred of respect for this political moment if I thought that there was some underlying ideology beneath what was happening. That the election fraud actually happened. Or that they believed the fraud happened. Instead of just using it as a thin percept to disenfranchise black voters in Detroit and elsewhere. Those of you who have watched some of the certification coverage of the Wayne County Board of Canvassers saw how fragile the system actually is at the local level. First at four presidential tipping point, the Wayne County Board of Canvassers is meeting right now to certify votes that have been so hotly contested here in Michigan. In case you haven't read any of the reports yourself, I'll give you the abridged version. Wayne County, which covers Detroit and its suburbs, met last night to certify their votes, which they would then send to the state board for further certification. These vote tallies then dictate the electors to deliver their vote for Joe Biden. Usually the certification is automatic, a formality. But this year, the votes split two to two along party lines. Again, this never happens. The two Republican officials cited various irregularities in Detroit as their point of contention. None of it makes any sense other than it was a brazen show of partisan chicanery on the local level and an attack to democracy. So you see a change as a result of the, of the, of the election in, in Michigan, if you take out Wayne County. It also sought to cancel the votes of hundreds of thousands of African-American voters. This too is tactic. The cities in which they claim fraud are all Democratic-run, with high African-American voter turnout. That there would be fraud in these cities is absolute catnip to MAGA conspirators who all know someone who swears they witnessed something fishy on Election Day. The problem is nothing happened. It turns out that there were more irregularities in the Detroit suburb of Livonia, which is 95% white, than there was in Detroit. So this was nothing more than a boldly racist and cynical attempt to slow down the certification. That's what our affidavits document. I have another one for you tonight, Sean. Luckily, the jam-packed Zoom call where the certification happened was filled with activists and outraged citizens who protested vociferously. Ultimately, under extreme duress and derision, the Republican canvassers ultimately certified their vote. For a sense of the impassioned vitriol aimed at these Republican canvas members, check out this clip from local board member Ned Stabler, who delivered the greatest fuck you to his MAGA opponents of the entire election. And you now added your name, so I, I'm not going to try to change your mind. I just want to let you know that the Trump stick, the stain of racism that you, William Hartman and Monica Palmer, have just covered yourself in is going to follow you throughout history your grandchildren are going to think of you like bull connor or george wallace monica palmer and william hartman will forever be known in southeastern michigan as two racists who did something so unprecedented that they disenfranchised hundreds of thousands of black voters in the city of detroit because they were ordered to Probably, I know, Monica, you think Q told you to do it or some other crazy stuff like that. But just know when you try to sleep tonight that millions of people around the world now on Twitter know the name Monica Palmer and William Hartman as two people completely racist, 
and without an understanding of what integrity means or a shred of human decency. You, the law isn't on your side. History won't be on your side. Your conscience will not be on your side. And Lord knows, when you go to meet your maker, your soul is going to be very, very warm. In the background, the entire time lurked Donald Trump who tweeted his support throughout the entirety of the standoff and Thursday invited Republican legislators to the White House. The New York Times wrote, Trump's team have promoted the legally dubious theory that friendly legislators could under certain scenarios effectively subvert the popular vote and send their own pro-Trump delegation to the Electoral College. Courts continue to dismiss his baseless claims of voter fraud, but now he's inviting Michigan lawmakers to the White House in a desperate bid to reverse the results in a key state Biden won. We exist today in a reality where the truth is not the reality. Or rather, it's the truth to some and not to the others. The entire post-election debacle is defined by the battle between these two disparate political realities. One exists in the real world, and it's where Joe Biden won the presidential election. The other is the land inhabited by Rudy, where his various election conspiracies have grown into a tsunami of bullshit that threatens to drown us all. Take today, for example, two different realities. In the real world, Georgia finished recounting their ballots and confirmed a Biden victory and found no evidence of widespread fraud after a statewide audit. Then, in the bizarro universe inhabited by MAGA conspiracists, we have complete and total madness. Despite that, Mr. Trump is ramping up his unprecedented efforts to get a second term. Yesterday, his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, held an extraordinary news conference making unsubstantiated claims of fraud, spinning wild conspiracy theories, none of which were supported by any evidence. In an afternoon presser, Rudy Giuliani was literally melting from the fucking face as if he were a demon displaying signs of the stigmata, spewing forth a torrent of conspiracy that is beyond the pale of anything uttered by a public figure. The man once described as America's mayor appeared sweating with newly applied black hair dye rolling down his face. It wasn't a press conference, it was a clown show without any actual meaning or reality. The weird liquid dripping from Rudy was like nothing more frightening than some errant just for men. One of the hazards of demagoguery is extreme sweating that one does while lustily dismantling democracy. What was unspooled seemed ripped from the man in the high castle or some other dystopian universe where American lost World War II and were living under fascist rule. But listen to this nonsense yourself. I can't believe this is the world that I live in, where this is what millions of fucking people believe to be the truth. I know crimes. I can smell them. You don't have to smell this one. I can prove it to you 18 different ways. Oh, I'm talking about some massive straight lines up in the vote tallies in the middle of the night after they've supposedly stopped counting. And that's when the Dominion operators went in and injected votes and changed the whole system. And it affects votes around the country, around the world, and all kinds of massive interests of globalists, dictators, corporations, you name it. Everybody's against us except President Trump and we the people of the United States. <laughs> it's true. Truth is stranger than fiction. The frustration for me, the irritation and madness is that this is also pointless. That it will be over in less than two months. It's all noise for the sake of noise and it's threatening to devour us all. 
I'm an ardent supporter of the First Amendment, but I believe there are moments when speech is weaponized and becomes something far more insidious. The far fringes of the internet conspiracy machine are reaching the apex of their power and are jumping from the ones and zeros of their algorithm into the world at large. We are playing with powers far beyond our capacity and are about to unleash more chaos into the atmosphere. This election was supposed to be a fight for the soul of this nation. Let's finish this damn thing. But even that's bullshit. This country's soul has long been sold. When half the electorate votes for Donald Trump, there's something deeply wrong and fucked up with this country. I know we're supposed to reach out to the other side and try to find common ground, but there's just no fucking way. There's nothing about Donald Trump or the future of Trumpism that is remotely acceptable. Nor is there any reasonable discussion around what's happening now. It's just fucking ridiculous that the entire presidential transition can be forced into a standstill through the work of a madman and bureaucrats. You talking to me? You talking to me? Talking to me? Well, who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? These political appointees are being forced to abide by rules dictated by men that are either completely and totally mentally insane and unfit for duty, or they are the epitome of evil, fascists and autocrats seeking unlimited power. The answer is actually worse. They're all of these fucking things combined. And right now they're running amok. When history looks back at this moment, it won't be to speak of its prescience, but it's to point out its pointlessness, that nothing was achieved or gained. The moment being fought was hollow and corrupt. It was about obtaining and maintaining power, fraud and greed. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Unless there is immediate action taken to hasten the transition, we are headed into a mean season of needless suffering and death. This is the end result of all of the lies and bullshit and disinformation. Trump is trying to gaslight the nation into senseless confusion. And to what end? His victory will be Pyrrhic at best. For there is no path forward and his final moments will happen whether he wants them to or not. That's why this is all so frustrating. It's both meaningful and utterly devoid of meaning. It's fearsome yet at the same time utterly predictable and we can't do nothing to stop it from happening. What the fuck is happening? What the fuck is going on? That's what I really want to know and I know it's what all of you want to know as well. We're living in a nightmare from which we cannot wake. A horror movie with no end and a car crash we can't stop watching. I desperately want things to go back to normal but I'm afraid that I don't know what normal looks like anymore. I don't know if you know this, and I don't know if you don't believe me when I tell you this, but what's happening right now in America is witchcraft's trying to take this country over. It's witchcraft. It's trying to take America back over. And I want to tell you something else. I am not being political. But I don't see how President Trump bears up under it. He's as strong as I have ever seen a man be. But here's what the Holy Spirit said to me last night, and here's what he said for me to tell you. 
He said, tell the church that so far Trump has been dealing with Ahab, but Jezebel's fixing to step out from the shadows. That's what the Lord said to me. But he said, pray for him now, because he said, there's about to be a shift and the deep state is about to manifest and it's going to be a showdown like you can't believe. So I'm coming to you as a prophet, as a man of God, and I'm telling you, it's time to pray for the president. Oh my God, I heard the Lord say, there's going to be an attempt to take him out of power. Let's stand and pray right now. In these maddening final days, to keep myself from going insane, I've decided that the best antidote to chaos is the liberty of reason, science, and rational thought. It's too easy to climb down the rabbit hole of conspiracy and drink the MAGA bathwater. To engage their ridiculous plots and scenarios is to give these ideas actual credence. But to ignore them outright is to let lies and bullshit fester in the commons. To help me sift through the wreckage of this election and what might come in its ongoing aftermath, I reached out to one of the country's foremost scholars on election law, Lawrence Tribe, a key architect of Al Gore's recount strategy in the 2000 election. Tribe has argued 35 cases before the Supreme Court and serves as a Harvard University professor of constitutional law. The title, University Professor, is Harvard's highest academic honor, awarded to just a handful of professors at any given time and just 68 professors in all of Harvard University's history. I also thought that before you start fighting with your crazy Uncle Ted at the Thanksgiving dinner table, we bring in a ringer so you can put your thumb on the scale. So let's listen now to that conversation. So Larry, thanks so much for joining us today on Maya Culpa. Want to jump just straight into this. So it's quite obvious at this point, right, that no one believes Donald Trump won this election, including Donald Trump. And what we're witnessing right now is really a sickening display of partisan theater meant to appease the president's ego, his fragile ego, and help him to raise vast amounts of money for his Mar-a-Lago afterlife as well. What do you believe that Trump is trying to do here with this entire charade? What do you think the end game is for him? Because I have my theories, but I'm really interested in yours right now. You certainly know him in a way that I don't. So my theories are probably less relevant. But I'll tell you a couple of things that I think. First of all, I don't think he's completely given up on the possibility, which I'm sure Rudy Giuliani and others are telling him is real. The possibility that several states will simply disregard what the citizens of those states have done and just name electoral slates that are dedicated to Trump. That could happen. I mean, you know, if if uh, all it takes is probably Arizona, Nevada and Wisconsin, even if he doesn't get Pennsylvania, those three, if their legislatures toss their combined electoral votes to Trump, it would end up 269 to 269 when the joint session of Congress meets on January 6th. And that would throw it into the House where Trump would win. That's not impossible. 
I've argued that it's legally crazy. It would be impermissible. But if it got to the Supreme Court, and it could, I'm quite confident that Alito and Thomas and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch would go along with that gambit, frightening as that seems. I don't think that the Chief Justice would, and I think it's probable that Amy Coney Barrett would go along with the chief, and then we would breathe one sigh of relief. But I don't want to rule out the possibility that that could happen. I think his main strategy doesn't, to the extent he has strategies, which I think you you and I both believe he doesn't, but his main impulse is, well, so I'm probably going to be kicked out of the Oval Office. Big deal. I'll still have 70 million people that are convinced that I've been knifed in the back and they've been knifed in the back. I will stoke their resentments, whether from Mar-a-Lago or somewhere else. I'll still have either a big TV show or I'll manage to get really rich. I'll raise a lot of money on the business of having the election stolen from me. I'll still have great influence. Maybe I'll run in 2024. I'll be a big powerhouse. And I'm sure he'll convince himself that that means he hasn't really lost. I don't think he believes in democracy to the extent he believes in anything. And therefore, the fact that it looks like Biden got six million more votes than he did, I'm sure he thinks that's just bullshit. That doesn't mean anything. Those aren't people who are really entitled to vote anyway. They're blacks. They're 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 Hispanic. They're illegitimate. I'm sure he has at some level convinced himself that the only legitimate Votes are the votes of people who believe in him. So my view is not exactly the same as yours. When when you say you think, you know, he knows he's lost, I don't think he thinks he's lost. Uh, Larry, I got to be honest with you. I know that he believes that he lost. And what he's doing right now is he's playing the Trump game, right? Mm -hmm. You know, 20 some odd years ago, 30 years ago, Mattel had the Trump game where it's yeah. all about winning. And he knows he's lost. He knows that he's out of there. While I agree with you that there is this sort of remote outside chance that he could pull something off. So far, he's lost every case in terms of the re-election um, evaluations. What's his definition of loss? When you say he knows he's lost, what does that mean? He knows he's lost the office of the presidency, but that's not what he's interested in. And you nailed it. He's more of an autocrat. He, you see, what he thought was that he was going to be president for life, that he was going to be another Putin or a Kim Jong-un, and he would then pass down the, the, um, the office to one of his scion, his incompetent children, right? right? And that's really what he was dreaming in his head because Donald Trump is a freaking dreamer. <laughs> That's really what he is. He's a fucking dreamer that he he builds. He's like, um, you know, Pancho Sanza. He's building, you know, windmills in the sky, thinking that he is going to be right. An autocrat that he's going to be president for yeah. life. And yeah. he could do to America what Vladimir Putin has done right to the um, to Russia right. in order for him to continue this crazy theory in his mind. He needs delusional people like himself in order to keep stoking the fire. Otherwise, he feels all alone. And he's not short of those people. Morons like Rudy Giuliani. Just give him a bottle of wine or a scotch, and the guy's willing to spew whatever bullshit that Donald Trump says. 
especially at twenty thousand dollars a month or a week or whatever the hell he's charging. A day, a day. A day yeah. I mean, I want you just to think about that. All of the people who are who are giving money to this defense fund that Trump is stoking is for what? To pay for Rudy Giuliani's Madison Avenue apartment? Come on, folks, wake the fuck up. This is who Donald Trump is. I'm sure that apart from this crazy possibility, which I described and which is really not impossible, this business of staying in the Oval Office, apart from that, which I'm sure that you're right, he doesn't think that's the likely outcome. I still don't think he defines it in his own head as losing. That is, as you say, he didn't want the office of the presidency. He wanted the fame, the power, the Moscow Tower, whatever money he could have gotten out of the race. And right now he's raising a ton of money, much of which is going to go into his own pocket, if not to pay off Giuliani and others. Um, but from his point of view, he's still kind of autocrat for life. That is, he thinks he is the most powerful man in the world. And his not being in the Oval Office, I think, doesn't disabuse him of that. He thinks he will be far more powerful outside the Oval Office than Joe Biden is inside the Oval Office. And I think from that point of view, he's convinced himself, I'm not a loser. The loser is the guy who thinks he won. And unfortunately, he's going to be a massive thorn yeah. in Joe Biden's thigh for the next right. four years, unless Joe Biden and this administration puts an end to him and his autocratic ideology. I do want to then bring you back to just a few days ago on November 15th, in response to a GOP official asking, what's the downside of humoring him for this little bit of time? No one seriously thinks the results will change. But you tweeted, how stupid. History teaches that a little undermining of democracy between friends can turn into a death match. Discuss with me and with the listeners where you see this death march going. Well, it seems to me it's going in the direction of destroying the institutions and norms and traditions that make us at least potentially a democracy. We've never been entirely a democracy. You know, everybody says we're a republic. That's true. But even from that point of view, we've disenfranchised millions of our own people. We started by enslaving vast numbers. We slaughtered the Indians. We've marginalized lots of people. Women didn't get the vote right away. We've never been a real democracy or a real republic. But what I think he is doing is taking all of the undemocratic strands of our history and tying them together into a noose that he's going to hang around our necks. Because if people think that elections can easily be stolen, that the votes of the people who aren't the right people, who from the point of view of a guy like Trump are the, are the straight white men with money, if people think that the votes of anybody but those people, those guys, are illegitimate anyway, we're going to have rule by a minority. And the only way the Republicans can remain in power is to preserve the institutions that make rule by a minority possible. Gerrymandering, the Electoral College, the vote suppression, the ending of, uh, of the Voting Rights Act, preclearance provisions. If they keep all of those things in place, especially with a right-wing Supreme Court that they've pretty much put together, then any progressive measures by the national legislature, by Congress, we confront 
a situation in which even if we manage just barely to take the Senate, the Supreme Court is already stacked against us. And the underlying institutions of democracy have been frayed deeply by his four years in office. If he ended up with eight years, and I'm still not absolutely 1,000% certainly won't, but if he ended up with eight years, it would all be gone. We would no longer be a democratic republic. Well, if in fact he ended up with eight years, you could rest assured that that would be the Pandora's box for Donald Trump to go for a third term and then a fourth term and then ultimately look to change the Constitution. Because you're right. He doesn't believe in democracy. He doesn't believe in the ideology of America or American exceptionalism. He believes in Donald Trump and Donald Trump only. And it's really it's a very scary thought. Um, Larry, you know, nobody knows this election business, the recount better than you. Because you argued the famous Bush v. Gore case in front of the Supreme Court in the year 2000 uh, on behalf of Al Gore. Can you walk my listeners through the difference in what's happening today versus what happened in 2000? Because many people are trying to conflate them as similar, and they're really just not. Yeah, they have almost no similarity. There were really two Supreme Court arguments in Bush v. Gore. I delivered the first one which actually we didn't lose. The Supreme Court, by a unanimous vote, sent the case back to the highest court of Florida and said, what the hell are you guys doing? Tell us what you're doing. Explain how what you are doing is consistent with Article 2 of the Constitution, which gives the state legislature the driver's seat in terms of how states are to run and rerun their presidential elections. The second argument which David Boyes argued on behalf of Al Gore is the one that we lost. That's the one in which the Supreme Court said, okay, you haven't told us what you're doing, but we're gonna grab hold of this case right now and say, it's time to stop the recount. At that point, only 537 votes separated Al Gore from George W. Bush. It was extremely close. The entire election turned on Florida's electoral votes the winner of the recount would be the winner of the presidency. And the Supreme Court said, guess what? We think that the Florida law requires the recount to be finished by midnight tonight. That was the so-called safe harbor date. And because it has to be finished by midnight tonight, we're not going to let them continue recounting the votes. We're going to end it all now. Now, there's nothing like that at present. There's no state where the two candidates are just a few hundred votes apart. We're talking not about the recounts in Georgia and Wisconsin, but the finishing up of the counting in Pennsylvania and other states. Right now, Gore is millions of votes. Gore, that's an interesting slip. Right now, Joe Biden is millions of votes ahead of Donald Trump. And even in the key states, the states of the upper Midwest and Georgia and Arizona and Nevada and North Carolina, even in those states, he is sufficiently ahead that none of the counting, none of the lawsuits, none of the recounts would flip things over so that Trump would end up with 270 electoral votes. 
So it's nothing like Bush v. Gore. Not not a thing. Well, he actually he actually believes that he owns the Supreme Court because he believes that since he put these three people on the Supreme Court, that they, like Bill Barr, yeah. will do his dirty bidding. Right. And, you know, he's wrong about that. I think Bill Barr is a total puppet. But whatever you may think of Kavanaugh and Gorsuch um, and Barrett, they are judges. And they're although they are right wing judges, uh, they are not beholden to Trump in any way. And there'll be a lot of cases in which they're going to vote in a way that he thinks is a form of betrayal. Yeah. So then let me ask you this question. Then what do you think is the overall legal strategy that Rudy Giuliani is now trying to follow? Because what do you believe is the goal of these lawsuits? Because in my opinion, none of them are capable of overturning the vote count. Do you believe, as Ben Ginsburg contends, that it's more of a delay tactic on their part to prevent the states from being able to certify the votes? Yeah, I think that's part of it, a delay to deter and discourage certification. That's probably going to fail. I think all of the relevant states will have certified their votes by December 11th, roughly. Um, but they're trying to get in the way of that. But I think even more important than that, they're trying to confuse, distract, distort, discourage. They're trying to make people believe that whatever the states do, the real winner is Trump. If you look at the votes that count, the votes of white males, basically, the real winner is Trump. All the rest is window dressing. And we don't believe in democracy anymore. I think Rudy, rather than trying to win these lawsuits, is trying to use them as a platform for undermining people's faith in the system. And when that succeeds, if it does, that will magnify the power that a demagogue like Trump, backed up by an idiot like Rudy, out in the hinterlands, will be able to exercise. They may not have the instruments of national power, but they will have bully pulpits uh, from which they'll be able to spew lots of bull that a lot of people will believe. Well, Larry, on Monday, you tweeted, Part of the Trump administration's motive for delaying the ascertainment that triggers the transition to a Biden administration is to cripple its successor. But the other part is to delay discovery of its shocking ineptitude and inexplicable inactivity. Discuss this with me for a moment, as well as why it just she just can't be ordered to begin the transition by Congress. Well, I'm glad you asked that, because right now, a great deal of harm is being done, quite apart from the undermining of democracy, to which Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump and what few lawyers are still willing to represent Trump are, are engaged in. A lot of harm is being done by the delay in the transition, by the fact that the administrator of the GSA, the General Services Administration, Emily Murphy, is refusing to do what the 1963 Presidential Transition Act gives her a duty to do, and that is to ascertain the apparent winner of the election. It says apparent winner, not the formal winner. And in the last 60 years, that ascertainment occurred within a day or two of the election, as soon as all of the mainstream media have decided who won, even while recounts were going on, ballots were being mailed in from overseas, 
absentee ballots were being sent in. Mail-in ballots were coming in from states that use mail-in as a standard technique. All of that was going on even after the ascertainment was made. She is withholding the ascertainment. And what that does is, first of all, it locks up all kinds of stuff that the Biden people could otherwise look at in order, just as I said earlier, and as you quoted, to see what some of their ineptitude looked like and what some of their crimes were. On top of that, she's making it impossible for the Biden team to hit the ground running on all of uh, on all eight cylinders. That is, it's a terrific team, but there's a lot of stuff locked up in the minds and the files of the bureaucracy that bears on COVID-19, on where the uh, supplies of PPE are missing, what we need to do in order to really manifest the full use of the Defense Production Act to get the vaccines out there in the form of vaccinations, all that stuff, plus national security information, is being withheld from the incoming Biden team just by her withholding that ascertainment. Now, in doing that, she's violating the law. Congress can't make her abide by the law, but perhaps a court could. And it's not impossible that a court would order that the harm she's doing is completely unjustified, that she is violating a mandatory duty. And it might be that she could be compelled in a suit for declaratory relief or injunctive relief or what's called a writ of mandamus. It might be that she could be compelled to get off her butt and allow the transition to go forward without prejudice to the arguments that jokers like Rudy Giuliani want to make in court. In other words, if she ascertains that Biden is the apparent winner, that can allow the passing of the baton and it can be returned if it should turn out that the real winner was Donald Trump. And in the meantime, it doesn't provide any obstacle to arguing in all of these lawsuits that the observers should have been allowed to get closer or that certain ballots shouldn't have been counted. They can argue that till the cows come home so that there's no justification at all for what uh, the head of the GSA is doing in doing Donald Trump's bidding in keeping this guessing game going. Larry, I, yeah, I'd like to try to take it a little further because I believe what Emily Murphy is doing will cost scores of people their lives and that she's endangering the nation as a whole. Right. Do you foresee the potential for future criminal charges against Murphy or others who enabled President Trump in his quest to overturn the entire electoral system? Frankly, no. I think I see the prospect for enormous kinds, you know, a whole range of criminal charges, state as well as federal, against many people connected with this administration for obstruction of justice, for tax fraud, for illegal money laundering for all kinds of offenses, both state and federal. But I think that the current attempt to litigate endlessly the results of the election and Emily Murphy's failure to issue the green light that she's supposed to issue, those do not violate any federal criminal law. And I, calling it as I see it, I think it's, it's immoral, it's outrageous, it's criminal in the in the colloquial sense, but I don't think what she is doing is a federal crime. Doesn't mean that a court can't order her 
to do what she's supposed to do. There are a lot of times when the law imposes a mandatory duty on somebody and they're not doing it isn't a crime. I mean, there's a duty on the part of Donald Trump to protect and preserve the United States Constitution. And I believe that he failed in that duty in ways that were reflected by his having been impeached, even though he wasn't convicted. But he didn't commit a federal crime by his ineptitude, although he certainly went down in history as the worst president we've ever had. I do think he did commit a number of federal crimes, including obstruction of justice during his presidency. But whether he will ever be held accountable for them, I think, will depend on what an independent new attorney general one unlike Barr, who is not simply doing uh, Joe Biden's bidding, it will depend on what an independent attorney general does about pursuing criminal charges for ways in which Trump violated the law. Of course, he could pardon, or at least Pence might pardon him, if he resigns just in time for Pence to become president. Uh, and he could pardon lots of people, though I don't believe he could constitutionally pardon himself, and he certainly can't do what he would love to do, and that is get rid of the state charges by use of a pardon. And the other thing he can't do is pardon future crimes he'd like to commit. That is, he's got, you know, he, he doesn't have a huge brain, as you know, but he's got a big enough brain to have a lot of national secrets in there that are worth a hell of a lot of money to our adversaries. And you can bet your bottom dollar that he would be willing to sell out the United States after he leaves office. If he does that, he will be committing espionage. He will be committing serious federal crimes, and he cannot pardon himself in advance in order to make the prosecution of those future crimes go away. You know, it's funny because I never really understood why the Democrats didn't take a stronger position on Trump in terms of obstruction of justice and witness tampering. I mean, just take a look at my case alone. He's guilty of obstruction of justice as well as witness tampering. His ongoing continuous tweets at me against my family, right? To, right before I was to testify before the House Oversight Committee, sending that pathetic weasel scumbag Matt Getz to start attacking, you know, my my wife and my family again on Twitter. And so this was all designed to obstruct justice, to witness tamper. And I just never really understood why they didn't take up this mantle and proceed forward against Trump instead of sitting there and worrying about like the Carter Page FISA warrants, right, which were so limited in scope. I mean, people don't really realize, and many of the politicians do, that his Twitter feed is much more dangerous than people know because there's such a large group of individuals that, like myself, were so brainwashed and are right now so brainwashed that you never really know what actions that they're going to take on, you know, this crazy man in chief's, you know, um, on, on his word. I mean, just look at the Proud Boys, right, marching throughout the streets, fighting, they walking in, in taking over the Capitol in Lansing, Michigan. I mean, he not only does he realize what he's doing. He does it in this subvert dog whistle type of manner. He's just dangerous. I'm just not really sure why they haven't taken up the mantle and opened up investigations. Well, you're, you're raising a huge number of different points. 
first of all, let's remember that the House of Representatives did impeach him for obstructing justice. They focused on the obstruction of justice in connection with Ukraine, but the charge also said that that was part of a pattern in which he had engaged, going all the way back to obstructing justice in connection with the Mueller inquiry. But it was all focused on Ukraine. You can argue in hindsight, with 2020 hindsight, that maybe the Democrats should have broadened the scope of their charges against him in the impeachment. But we know that in the end, the fix was in in the Senate anyway. The senators violated their oath to do impartial justice. They didn't even call any witnesses. It wouldn't have made the slightest difference if they had expanded it to include all sorts of other things. I mean, from the very beginning of this administration, I've been arguing that he has violated his oath. He's violated the Constitution, accepting foreign emoluments, being indebted to foreign governments. It's clear that he violated federal law by conspiring with various people to cover up. He was individual one, uh, as you very well know, in terms of the cover up of the hush money to Stormy Daniels and others. Many of the things he's done by tweet or otherwise have been incitements to violence that have probably violated various federal laws against verbal threats. I could go on and on. I mean, he has been a nonstop, absolutely continuous violator of so many federal laws and of the U.S. Constitution that it's astonishing. And what in some ways foreigners found most astonishing is that someone as unprincipled, as selfish, as narcissistic, as criminal as this man has been, can nonetheless, even after his manifest neglect of this terrible pandemic that's killed a quarter of a million Americans with basically a 9-11 every two days now, how this guy could have been given over 70 million votes in his reelection campaign. You know, we talk about how the, the, in the end result, it wasn't all that close, but it was close. The shift of 45,000 votes in three states, Nevada, Arizona, and, uh, and Georgia, I believe, would suddenly have shifted the Electoral College to a dead heat tie between Trump and Biden. How it can possibly have been that close after this entire history is, is staggering. Uh, it doesn't say wonderful things about about all of us that we could have come close to reelecting this man. But it is a fact and we have to learn how to deal with that fact. We have to be able to talk to our fellow Americans. I mean, you know, I do actually I know people who voted for Trump. Uh, I don't regard them as automatically deplorable. I don't think I fully understand what motivated them to do it. But those of us who are on the other side need to try to understand them, need to speak to them. They're our fellow Americans. Many of them feel overlooked, neglected, right? And unless they are brought into the picture somehow, we're going to have a country that isn't functional. You know, you talk about uh, the House and how they probably should have expanded the whole obstruction of justice that they concentrated too heavily on the Ukraine. I totally agree with you on to this. And I didn't quite say that. But I think there's a lot to be said for their narrow focus. So 
I said they could have expanded it. I'm not sure it would have worked. Uh, we know the Senate would have acquitted him anyway. Then let me jump in and say that I believe that they should have increased um, their scope because if you ask 99, if you ask 100 Americans, do you care that Donald Trump withheld $200 million or $400 million of military aid to the Ukraine despite the fact that it was it was um, permitted by Congress. 99 out of 100 will come back and say, I don't give a shit, right? <laughs> as far as we're concerned, I'd rather the money in our pocket, not in the Ukraine's. And my wife was born in the Ukraine. So I'm telling you, me personally, I don't give a shit if he gave them the 400 million or not. I'd rather see the 400 million in the United States putting food on people's table or fixing schools or roadways or what have you. The problem is you can't wrap your hands around that argument. And to have, you know, these 50 people constantly bashing the same issue that most people don't care about. I tell you what people do care about. The president of the United States witness tampering and obstructing justice so that true information that needs to be out there so people could understand exactly what's going on behind closed doors. That's what I think people would be more interested in. You may be right. I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that our efforts to make the Ukraine extortion seem relevant to ordinary people were very uphill and maybe we didn't succeed because the idea was that money was voted for the Ukraine and he was treating it as his own uh, as his own pile of money in order to get dirt on his future opponent. Uh, maybe people don't care about that, but that was the gamble that people would care. Rest assured that they don't. But on Tuesday, you tweeted as he watches his power ebb, Trump's nuclear trigger finger will get increasingly itchy. A last minute strike, cyber or hot is my biggest fear at this moment, because I have said in the past that Donald Trump will take this country to war in order to save his position. Discuss this with me. Well, it is scary. He has the nuclear codes. He could use them. He could certainly trigger a hot war in the Middle East in the very waning days of his presidency if he really gets desperate to stay in the Oval Office, he could do all kinds of things. I think he might really confront some kind of resistance on the part of the military command uh, because they know that the guy is basically crazy. And it's not entirely clear if he were to say, you know, if he were to take certain steps that they would be carried out by those who actually have to pull the physical trigger. Uh, there's also the sense in which he may not be desperate to stay in the Oval Office if he has already begun to game how he can retain power from outside. That is, he's looking for ways of making money. He may realize that he's lost the support of the rank and file Republican Party. So if he were to take some absolutely reckless military measure to stay in power, I think he might undermine his own future and to the extent he can see beyond the end of his nose, that might be a deterrent. But I'm still scared of it because technically he has the power to do all kinds of damage as the, as the clock comes closer and closer to striking midnight. Except don't forget, you know, Trump had once said, 
that I can kill somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. He doesn't believe his followers are ever going to leave him. But you retweeted an NPR reporter, Hansi Lo Wang, saying, before leaving office, President Trump wants to try to reshape the Electoral College map for the next 10 years, and that he'll attempt to do so through a case that's coming before the Supreme Court in two weeks about the altering of 2020 census numbers. And you said in response, this case is a more likely source of enduring harm from the current court than most people realize. Watch this space. Explain to my listeners what's happening at the Supreme Court level and how that impacts the Electoral College and why this really matters at all. Well, he's trying to say that people who are uh, not U.S. citizens should be excluded when it comes to drawing up the map, the allocating the representatives in the House of Representatives, which in turn shapes the Electoral College. It's an unconstitutional position because the Constitution is very explicit that for purposes of allocating representatives, you count everybody, not just U.S. citizens. You count everybody. Remember, at one point, you didn't count all of the uh, all of the slaves, only three fifths of them. There are no slaves. You count everybody, including non-citizens. If the Supreme Court were to let him to were to let the Census Bureau and, and Trump exclude lots of people who live in urban areas that are heavily minority, exclude them from allocating power in the House of Representatives, that would kind of lock in for at least 10 more years a maldistribution of political and therefore economic power. And that's really important. I think that to the extent that these justices are literally originalists, they look at what the Constitution originally said and originally meant, they're likely to repudiate Trump's position. But it's not going to be clear because a number of the justices seem to be more influenced by political and partisan considerations than I, than I wish were true. So that's an important case to watch. Well, Barack Obama recently said the following about social platforms like Facebook and Twitter are in need for federal oversight and regulation. And what he said was the degree to which these companies are insisting that they are more like a phone company than they are like the Atlantic, I do not think is tenable. The First Amendment doesn't require private companies to provide a platform for any view that is out there. Now, you agreed wholeheartedly with this take. Discuss this with me. Right. I think it's important to remember that when Facebook and Twitter and other social platforms claim that they have no editorial power, they are simply letting people say whatever they want, that that is just not true. They obviously have the power and they exercise it to exclude some people from using their platforms. Because they have that power, they're not at all like the telephone company that bears no responsibility. Uh, you know, if, if A and B in a cell phone call or using the Internet plot some murder, the Internet is not responsible for the murder and the phone company is not responsible. It's not Verizon's responsibility. But if somebody plots a murder using Twitter as a platform and or using Facebook as a platform. Uh, Facebook and Twitter can't wash their hands of responsibility. 
they need to be held more responsible. This Section 230 of the Internet Communication Act uh, really needs to be re-examined. And in that sense, I agree with Barack Obama that it's very important that these platforms not be able to get away with saying, you know, don't blame me. We have nothing to do with the harm that our that our distortion of information and our fake or our deep fakes that, that we propagate uh, may cause. Now, it's another step beyond, beyond that. It's another step to ask what kinds of regulation should be imposed. I mean, to the extent they are like the Atlantic or like the New York Times or like a newspaper, they do also have some First Amendment rights of their own. The government can prevent them from using their platform to incite violence and to do other things that are not protected by free speech. But the government certainly can't impose its heavy hand on Facebook, Twitter, Google, the entire range can't impose upon them the government's views of what ideas people should have and what truths people should believe in. So it's a complicated balance. Well, it's complicated because like that movie um, about, I think it was the Lehman Brothers, too big to fail. Yeah. Right. They're just too big to fail. And they, in all fairness, Facebook and Twitter and Google and all, they don't want to spend the money in order to figure out how to create a more secure platform where fake individuals can't constantly get on and spew this disinformation, right? Um, especially these foreign, because what they want to do is they want to keep the money so that they can distribute more money to their shareholders. I mean, that's just a Wall Street concept. But Larry, yesterday on Twitter, you highlighted a fantastic piece from the New York Review of Books entitled Democracy's Afterlife. Now, the quote that you polled read, in this frame of mind, there can never be a result of the 2020 election. For Trump and his followers, there are not five stages of grief leading from denial to acceptance. The furthest their sense of it can go is to the second stage of anger. What do you believe will be the ultimate outcome of this anger for both Trump and his MAGA faithful? Well, if I had a crystal ball clear enough to answer that question, Michael, I, I would uh, probably be in the stock market myself. I, I really don't know, but I can tell you <laughs> right. that, that that article by Fintan O'Toole is an incredibly deep and searching one that I recommend that, that people read in the New York Review of Books. There's another thing that I think people ought to read. Going back to your question about too big to fail and about Facebook and all of these, uh, all of these huge companies, I think people ought to read a book by Shoshana Zuboff um, called Surveillance Capitalism about the business model of these companies where they basically steal our identities, monetize them, and make a fortune from them while also making a lot of money by looking the other way while their platforms are used to disseminate fake information. I'm a member of a little group called the Facebook, kind of the real Facebook Oversight Board, where we're trying, since Facebook can't police itself, we're trying to look at all of the abuses that Zuckerberg and others are guilty of and trying to shine a public light on them. But I guess those are topics for, for another podcast. Yeah, well, I'm going to recommend a different book. It's called Disloyal, written by this fabulous author named Michael Cohen, that if you read it, you'll realize that the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, is a narcissistic sociopath who has all forms of disorders, all right, that 
at the end of the day, has caused nothing but Trump derangement syndrome and Trump fatigue for this country that I don't know how these MAGA followers will ever get away because he has put them into the same crazy spell that I was in, and he's getting them to do crazy things like I used to do for him because he's just a cult leader. I do want to turn then to the country right now. Can I ask a question? How did you break the spell? Because a lot of people could use your advice. I went to prison. I, I went to prison, Larry. It, well, I didn't leave it on my own volition. I was kicked in the ass. I was thrown under the bus by a man who I had given absolute loyalty to, who decided to use you know, my, my head uh, as a stopper so that his plane doesn't roll forward or backwards as he just threw me to the wolves, walked away. And that's what Donald does. He distances himself from you. He denigrates you. You know, he... Um, he he just moves on at with no thought about whether the information is accurate or not. He doesn't care as long as that there's a benefit for him and for his cronies. You know, he's willing to trade one crony for another. And watch what happens to Rudy. Rudy's right now in the firing squad. And nothing's going to make me happier than to see the crosshairs right in the dead center of his forehead because he's laying himself up for it. Now, you may remember during the House Oversight Committee, I said to Mark Meadows and to Jim Jordan and a bunch of the other sycophantic Republican fools that sat there denigrating me again and again and again, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. You're following the Donald Trump playbook. And they jump, oh, we're not following it. Yes, you are. You may not know that you are, but you are. And how I know you're following it is because I fucking wrote it. I wrote the playbook that he's following. And they're following it exactly, which is exactly why I knew where they were going with their questions before I even stepped into the room. They're so fucking predictable that it's scary. And they're following this, this, this pie-in-the-sky ideology of Donald Trump right, in a playbook that I actually wrote. But going back to where I, the country right now is arguably more divided than it was during those um, extraordinary turbulent times. With the election of Joe Biden, many people are hoping that he brings the nation together. That's one of the things I'm hoping, that we stop this divisiveness and that we all see each other as Americans. Is that even possible in today's political climate? Or has Trump created a chasm that's just too far to bridge? I never think that anything is impossible. I think it's a very difficult bridge to cross. I think if anybody can do it, it's somebody with the decency, the empathy, the heart that Joe Biden has. I think if he engages in something like fireside chats, uh, there are some people that may be unreachable. But I have enormous faith in the better angels of the human spirit. I think even a lot of thugs uh, who have had plenty of Kool-Aid uh, can come to realize that they've been misguided. I don't think they have to go to prison to learn that lesson. I think some people can, can wake up. And I'm hoping that if anyone can wake them up, it's, it's Joe Biden. I do think that he was the best candidate that we could have run for that purpose. I think anybody else would have had a might have lost. And I, I do think that he has an opportunity, but it's a hard one, partly because they are salting the earth on their way out. 
I mean, you know, with with the flamethrower they're using, they can't really tear down a skyscraper, but they can scar a lot of people and burn a lot of people. And they are putting a lot of landmines in the future, partly by slowing down the transition. They're making it harder for them to deal with the coronavirus. He actually, when he talked to Bob Woodward, we now know that he probably believed Fauci. That is, he thought it was a lot worse than he was pretending it was. That's part of what what he's responsible for. He's responsible for deliberately deceiving the American people because he says he didn't want to upset them or panic them. Well, that's obviously BS. He, he doesn't mind panicking, upsetting people, exploiting fear. That's one of his trademarks. But he thought he'd be better off by looking the other way and 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 letting more people die. I mean, that's that's truly disgusting. Yeah. Well, Larry, I want to switch gears again, uh, this time for a moment, to talk about Lindsey Graham. He's long been a fawning Trump sycophant, but he has of late crossed the line into outright sedition and criminality with his urging of the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to throw out legal ballots. Now, this, coupled with his full-throated support for the president's baseless fraud claims puts him, you know, way out in front of his fellow senators who have been more muted in their support of the president. Talk to me for a sec why why Lindsey Graham is staking out this position. Well, I can't necessarily speak to his motives, but I can certainly speak to what it all amounts to. That is, when he is reinforcing Trump's baseless claims of fraud or Giuliani's baseless claims of fraud, uh, he's being a fraud himself, but not necessarily committing crimes. But when he reaches across the border from South Carolina into Georgia and tries to persuade the Georgia Secretary of State to throw out lawful ballots, he is violating, I think it's Section 241 of 18 U.S. Code. He's actually acting to deprive people of their constitutional rights uh, with knowledge and intent. He's committing federal crimes. And I do think that, that those are crimes that a, uh, a U.S. attorney, not under Donald Trump's thumb through the fist of, uh, of Bill Barr, uh, might do well to investigate. I'm sure that the incoming administration is going to take its hands off of, of the investigatory throttle. I, I think it's clear that Biden, quite wisely, will not involve the White House in the decisions of the Justice Department about whom exactly to investigate and prosecute, whether Lindsey Graham or Donald Trump or anybody else. But I think an independent Justice Department would do well to look at, at Lindsey Graham as a possible violator of federal criminal law. Well, because along with Lindsey Graham's um, you know, baseless claims of election fraud, um, and of course, following Donald Trump's claims of this election fraud. I'm really truly beginning to believe that the president must have some serious compromise on Lindsey Graham to get him to do the things that he's doing. Because I can't think of how else would you explain, right, this completely over-the-top enthusiasm for these obviously made-up claims, right? I mean, there is no upside for Lindsey Graham anymore to be following this pattern of stupidity. What do you think's going on here? I don't know what, you know, skeletons are in Lindsey Graham's closet, but I, I'd be surprised if there weren't some, because it does really seem as though a guy who at one point 
described Trump as utterly unfit to be president uh, and who occasionally has flashes of reasonableness to now turn around and again uh, commit serious offenses in Trump's uh, in in Trump's behalf, it's got to have he's got to have some motive other than the belief that it helps him with his constituents uh, in South Carolina, because I I think it, in the long run it just makes him look like a fool uh, and one who's seriously compromised. But I'm not going to speculate on what Trump has on Graham. I think I'll leave that to the imaginations of your of your listeners. I don't think he's doing it because because he thinks if he doesn't, uh, Trump will send a nasty tweet about him. I mean, I think he's he may be a coward, but he's not so cowardly that he would shrink from a tweet. So I'm sure that he thinks that there are things that Trump knows and has evidence of that would that would really embarrass him or hurt him. Uh, and he doesn't want those to come out. Makes perfect sense. So, you know, Larry, as we're winding down the hour, I want to just, you know, talk to you about this last topic, um, the violence that so many people thought were going to occur in the event that Donald Trump lost the election, which I believe that he has. Um, and so far, thank God, there has been surprisingly little violence in the wake of the election. You foresee anything changing? Do you foresee Donald Trump calling and blowing the you know the dog whistle to his MAGA army, the ones that walk around with the AR-15s with the with the hockey helmets and the you know and the and the SWAT right. gear that they buy in their local stores. Do you foresee any of this? Because I have to be honest with you, I don't. And while I understand that they're angry and they took to the streets for the most part, it was a relatively peaceful protest. And that's okay in America to have peaceful protests. Now, there were, of course, a handful of people that will always be stupid and they will always do stupid things. And our law enforcement, who are more than capable of dealing with them, put them in their place and arrested them. You foresee any additional violence coming out of this as a result of Trump blowing his dog whistle? Well, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. Um, that the fear was exaggerated. I think one of the reasons that we haven't seen more of it, honestly, ironically, uh, is that Trump has convinced people that it isn't all over yet, that he's got all these lawsuits going. And a lot of people think, you know, maybe he will still win. And therefore, their, their, their anger, there's kind of an outlet for their anger. They think maybe these lawsuits will make a difference. When it becomes absolutely clear, when hail to the chief is played to Biden rather than Trump, there may be some people who just can't control themselves, who are going to go out with guns, who are going to do violent things. I think the odds of that are not great, but the odds that everything will go peacefully are not great either. There's going to be some serious unrest, but I agree with you there can and will and should be protests. There are people who think this is the wrong result. They should peacefully express their views with all of their invective if they want to spew it verbally, as long as they don't shoot anyone, as long as they don't smash windows and, and engage in violence. It's their right to protest. I hope that's all it'll be. Well, you and I both, and um, Larry, again, I want to thank you for your insight and for your 
um, many years of experience in this turmoil right now that we call our electoral process. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. It's been an interesting conversation. Yes, it has. And now for today's mea culpa. As Thanksgiving approaches, I am finding it difficult to find moments of gratitude as we are still surrounded by so much chaos and political strife. We are all locked inside as the pandemic rages and we hold our breath for what's to come. I know that sounds bleak, but it's simply my truth at this dark moment. That said, I can't help but think back a year ago today. My Thanksgiving was being held inside the confines of Otisville Prison. Separated from my wife and children, with no family connection whatsoever, I never felt more alone in my life than during that holiday. So I must be thankful now for the fact that I am home and not there, locked in a cell. I am thankful as well for being given the gift of sight in order to make my way out of the darkness that defined Donald Trump and the path that it took me on. I am thankful for the new connections I have made because of all of this and to all of you who make me want to keep going each and every day. I hope that next year we will all have a far different Thanksgiving though. That this year will be the one we must suffer through in order to reach the other side. It seems like it's a million years and a million miles away, almost like I am back in prison. But on the other side of all of this will come the inauguration of Joe Biden and we can finally be free of Trump's grasp. A man can dream, can he? And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea Culpa. Nothing but the truth. This is my-